Hello, hello, and welcome to Reason for Hope. Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We will be with you, like I say, live for the next hour to answer your questions on God's Word, the Bible. That's right. If you have questions about Scripture, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture, or maybe even uh, world events from a biblical perspective, prophetic things, or things going on in your life and world you'd like a biblical perspective on, that's what we're here to do. It's your questions that guide our time along as we're here with you live for the next hour. So we're very grateful for you joining us and sending your questions in um, through our various platforms, which I will let you know what they are in a few moments here. My name is Dave Robson. I will be hosting today and fielding those questions as they come on in. With us today is Pastor Sean Richards and Pastor Scott Richards as well. And again, the blue, the blue color that I didn't get the memo to. But <laughs> <laughs> I should check in next time. How are you guys doing today? Uh, we're doing fantastic. Well, yeah. speaking for me personally, I'm doing well. How yeah. about you? Yeah, darndest thing about the surprise sickness that came and went, but nothing that a steady stream of dark military humor and cat videos couldn't fix. Well, that's good. You should market that if that's uh, working for you. <laughs> YouTube will probably a... ban us. Yeah. Probably, yes, probably. Well, once again, uh, Reason for Hope uh, is a live broadcast. It's a ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson here in Arizona, where we're broadcasting from. And we're on multiple platforms that you can find us on. Obviously, if you're hearing us and seeing us, you've already found a way. If you're listening to us on Reach Radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, so you'll want to use our email address to send in your questions, which is questionsforhope at gmail.com. But other than that, we are as live as can be. We're here with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Uh, if you go to um, our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, and go to the Watch Live tab right there, you will be taken to our live page. When we're off air, you will see a countdown to our next show. You'll also see a schedule of upcoming, not only Reason for Hope broadcasts, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson. And if we are live, you will see our faces there, and there'll be a chat function. You can uh, pick a name to sign in with, and then you can be part of the broadcast through um, that chat function. The direct link for that, should you want to use that, ccftucson.online.com church or again just follow the link from our calvarychristianfellowship.com website that's a great way to to go there as well we're on facebook as well of course calvary christian fellowship of tucson look for us there or facebook.com slash ccf tucson you'll find us right there it's a great way to join us as well we have an app for your mobile device or even roku and apple tv once again keep calvary christian fellowship of tucson in mind if you search you'll see our little app which is the Calvary Chapel logo dove right there on the red background, and you'll be able to download that on your device, uh, on iPhone, um, or your iPad, or other what's that other uh, uh, you know phone provider that I don't use myself? <laughs> you know the other? <laughs> no, you know the other one, iPhone or the Samsung? other one? Samsung? So, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> you know the other main uses. I've never used it myself. This, this but, broadcast uh, not brought to you by the Samsung. People. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. We are not. Uh, we're not sponsored by iPhone at all. Uh, on YouTube, uh, the uh, channel there is A Reason for Hope. So search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546. But again, you can just search for that. You'll find us there as well. Um, you can follow our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, with us today on Twitter. His handle is Scott R4H. That's Scott letter R number four letter H, where he posts highlights from the show and commentary on prophetic things, world events, news things, and things like that. Very interesting. A great way to kind of follow along with news things from a biblical perspective as well. Um, so you can follow him if you're a Twitter kind of person. And last but not least, our email address, as I mentioned, questionsforhope at gmail.com. 
questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can email us there, of course, anytime, and we get to those questions as, as well. So do send your questions in. Get them in um, early. We sometimes get a lot of questions to get through, so get them in. Um, we apologize if we didn't get your questions yesterday or the day before, but if you'll join us again, restate them. We do have a list of questions that were left over, and we will get to those as well. So with all that being said, why don't we pray before we go any further? That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, thank you that we can invite your presence here. Uh, wherever we are, wherever people are tuning in all around the world, I thank you, Lord, that uh, there is no place that we can uh, go from your spirit. And Lord, your spirit is here to guide us into all truth. What an exciting prospect, Lord, that we can look at the scriptures today, answer questions in a way that, that not only is going to clarify our understanding in these confusing times, but minister to our hearts in a very powerful way. Pray, Father, that you would do that. I pray that you would blow our minds uh, by showing us uh, just how good your word truly is and how applicable it is to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, I wanted to ask you guys, We at the end of the show um, yesterday, we had a question from Ronald that uh, Bo and Peter were uh, gave in their thoughts on, but I thought I'd run it by you guys too. Ronald was telling us that there's a, a study by Kay Arthur. Um, it's a teaching series on battling demons. Um, he says, it seems very strange, but it is a large women's Bible study at a local church. I am skeptical of this women's Bible study. Uh, demonology is not a Bible study. I'm aware we should encourage. Please correct me if I'm wrong. So really the question is how much should we study demons and their schemes and be aware of that in our Christian walk? Is there a balance in that? Should we at all? Yeah, of course. Uh, like any legitimate field, sometimes the problem isn't whether or not something should be studied, it's how it's studied. studied. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And obviously, uh, Peter Martin and Bo did a great job yesterday in dealing with the bare bones. What Satan means is an adversary, and an adversarial spirit needs to be understood as not the sort of spiritual input you should be looking for. And they, of course, properly cited the book of James, noting that the essence of spiritual warfare, the crux, if you will, is draw near to God, he'll draw near to you, resist the, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God is the objective term. So if we're talking about demonology as far as spiritual warfare is concerned, it is worthwhile in this day and age of uh, internet deception and overwhelming uh, media saturation of things that may or may not be helpful to just get down to the brass tacks. Okay, mm -hmm what demons are out there. Well, we can talk about whether or not the entity known as Abaddon in Revelation chapter 9 is another nickname for Satan in reference to John chapter 10, as the thief come to steal, kill, and destroy, that being one of his characteristics, whether that's a specific trait of Satan or not, that'd be an example of demonology and a legitimate form of study, but not one that's obviously practical. That'd, that'd be all cerebral. Likewise, if we're going to ask the question whether Lucifer was a title for Satan, whether it's even a reference to him at all, whether Satan as an adversary accuser is describing his nature rather than his actual name and status, there are people of good debates on that. That'd be an example of demonology. There's, and again, I hesitate to say this because so many people take it the wrong way, but people who look into, say, Jewish mysticism, the entities like Samael and Azazel and so forth, uh, the entities that were described and associated with Jewish ceremonies that weren't, of course, biblical, but were nonetheless treated as adversarial spirits, understanding where the Bible begins and tradition ends. That's a good exercise in discernment. 
that'd be an example of demonology. But when it comes to what's oftentimes portrayed in you know horror movies and media, you know, uh, familiar spirits, possessed artifacts, and so forth, you could study that in a field of demonology if it's in order to compare it to the Bible. But make sure that when it comes to any study of the demonic, you're understanding your enemy and how to properly deal with them, mm. which in its fullest was already covered by Peter and Bo. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. You don't resolve or resist the darkness by cursing it. You simply draw near to the light. If that's all that someone ever knew about the demonic, they didn't know whether Satan or Lucifer was something, they didn't even know what Azazel was <laughs> or yeah. all the other uh, entities, maybe the sources of popular artwork and betrayals of Satan being taken from the Roman god Pan rather than scripture, those would be handy trivia. But as far as practical pursuits, all of spiritual warfare, all of demonology, you can get it in one chapter of James. Right. Anything to add to that, Scott? Yeah, um, K. Arthur has uh, been somewhat controversial in this particular area because mm-hmm. uh, from her particular theological background, uh, she has been known uh, to talk about uh, rebuking uh, Satan in mm-hmm. uh, certain areas. Is that a uh, consistently uh, scriptural practice, we could ask? Well, the only time that we see um, an example of Satan being rebuked is in the book of Jude. Uh, We are told that uh, uh, in verse 8, Likewise, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, that's not even technically an actual event. That's a quote from an apocryphal source known as the Assumption of Moses. Well, but it is divinely inspired holy writ because Jude has included it in here. Yeah, and so, he'd either be making the same point or he'd be referencing and acknowledging it. But yeah. we note that point. It's yeah. giving a, a illustration, an example of don't mess with the demonic. The Lord's got them handled. Focus on speaking the truth. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if uh, the archangel Michael, of all people, who has had direct encounters with Satan on a level that would probably curl our hair, uh, and in the future will lead the armies of God against Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, we are told that uh, there was going to be no place found for Satan and uh, his angels in heaven. Uh, you know, if his response to dealing with Satan at this particular issue was simply saying, the Lord rebuke you, I think the the uh, principle there is any encounter that we have with the wicked one should be short and sweet and point them to Jesus. Mm. You and I are not the least bit intimidating towards Satan. Uh, he could tie us in a knot intellectually in a New York minute, uh, but uh, the presence of Jesus, we are told, uh, causes him to be terrified. Mm. James says, you believe that God is one you do well. The demons believe and tremble. The word tremble there literally means the hair on the back of their neck stands up. They're so mm. afraid of him. Uh, So, you know, when we start to see individuals uh, sort of pointing people towards casting out demons, uh, particularly getting close to the idea of uh, of sanctification in the Christian life by casting out demonic strongholds within uh, the life of a believer, uh, you know, there are those that will buy into these kind of doctrines uh, because they say, well, I've experienced it or this was helpful to me. But experience and even things that are helpful Uh, can be very deceptive. Mm. Uh, We need to test all things and hold fast what is good. 
And so the idea of rebuking Satan, um, we don't really see this as an ongoing practice uh, within the Word. Uh, you know, if we do feel like there is a uh, false doctrine being promoted, then obviously the people promoting that false doctrine need to be rebuked. But as far as spiritual warfare is concerned, I think a really good rule of thumb is this. We should spend far more time in a situation where we feel like we are being attacked spiritually, and it does happen to us, there's no doubt about it. Uh, We should spend far more time talking to God about the situation than uh, talking to Satan. Yeah. Uh, Satan, I think, is happy anytime that we're not talking to God, anytime our focus isn't on God, isn't uh, on the focus of the fact that we don't fight for victory in the Christian life, but from victory in the Christian life. Yeah. When Jesus rose from the dead, he defeated Satan at that point. Um, you know, Satan's a defeated foe. Well, people say, well, he's certainly not acting like a defeated foe right now. He's certainly active in the world. Yeah. But uh, even a cursory example of how war goes down on a human level would show you that even though uh, as soon as, uh, say, the Nazis lost the Battle of Stalingrad in World War II, mm. uh, the war was as good as over at that point. Uh, when the Allies landed at Normandy and established that beachhead, uh, the war was as good as over. Even after the Battle of the Bulge, uh, where Hitler was going to try one last attempt to cut off the Allies from being land from being able to land their supplies in uh, Antwerp in Belgium. Uh, even when that failed and Hitler wasn't able to do that, it didn't mean that the Nazis just threw down their guns and said, "Okay, we give up. <laughs> We're sorry." Eventually, that happened. Yeah, eventually that happened. But there was still a lot of fighting left yeah. to be done, even though the enemy was, by all all accounts, as good as defeated. Even you know, with ten days left. Before the Allies got to Berlin, uh, the Nazis uh, hung, uh, you know, uh, uh, individuals that were uh, a part of the uh, resistance, uh, and so on. Uh, and, and so, uh, spiritual warfare works that same way. You know, Satan yeah. isn't a fool. Satan knows the Scripture better than we do. Mm. Uh, he knows he's a defeated foe, but uh, like any other defeated foe, he's going to try to take out as many people yeah. and take as many with him as he can. And I think that's probably the healthiest aspect that we can have on spiritual warfare. So, you know, whether you're in a Bible study, and K. Arthur's precept Bible studies have been pretty well received uh, by and large by people. It doesn't mean that everything you're going to hear in a Bible study like that is going to be right on. Uh, It doesn't mean that we turn off the discernometer uh, because someone says, oh, well, you know, this church that's a reputation for being very solid you know, teaches K. Arthur material. Mm. Well, you know, be a Berean. Search the scriptures daily to find out these things are really so, especially in a tricky area like spiritual warfare. Yeah, great. Well, thanks. Thanks for your thoughts on that. It's a great question. Uh, a question from uh, Taylan. What's the significance of God providing the lamb um, in the Abraham and Isaac account? It's like a two-part question as well. And the second part is, why did John the Baptist introduce Jesus as the lamb? Well, it wasn't a lamb in Genesis 22, it was a ram, and that, oh, is, ram. that is a significant detail. Mm. But for those of you not familiar, while we're turning to the passage, just to summarize, the instant was that in Genesis 22, the child of promise, the one that was born well beyond the normal expectation of human biology, God gave Abraham a fulfillment of a promise he had been made 
decades before and waiting on the promises of God and even making spiritual stumbling along the way that the world's still suffering for now, Isaac was born and this child of promise was specifically set aside by God as saying, through this child, not your children, this child, you'll become a father, not just of many nations, but you'll inherit the promise that I made to Eve in Genesis 3 in so many words. Now, then Genesis 22 comes along, that would be five chapters later from when this promise was reiterated to Abraham, and of course, two before that, or three before that, excuse me. And what's interesting as well is he's not married. He doesn't have any children. He's not obviously making many nations at this point. He's <laughs> got one kid, and he's got another kid that he had to kick to the curb because he didn't trust God. What happened? Well, God tells him, sacrifice him which again in the ancient world was not all that uncommon. The pagan gods of the nations, the ones that Abraham was familiar with, the uh, Sumerian gods and the Canaanite gods in particular were all over human sacrifice. Abraham was immersed in that culture. This would not have been a surprise to anyone, yet this chapter is used as a prohibition against human sacrifice throughout Jewish history and culture. What happened in between? Well, Abraham, and note the narrative that's kind of being set up here, for three days walked up with Isaac to the top of a mountain that the Lord would show him, specifically Mount Moriah, where Jerusalem would later be built. It wasn't at that point. And on these series of mountains, God told Abraham, put the child on the altar. He was over 100 at this point, uh, 100 when Isaac was born, plus the 20, maybe even 30 years or so that Isaac had grown up until this point. If you see popular media or artwork that show Isaac as a child, it's only because they assume that Isaac was an unwilling participant in the sacrifice. That's nothing could be further from the truth. Hebrews 11 notes Isaac was just as much commended for his faith in this situation by letting his father place him on the wooden altar, which, right. by the way, he carried up mm-hmm. that he would be sacrificed on. Second, interesting foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. So noting Isaac being placed in this altar and the knife about to come down, the angel of the Lord, God physically appears to Abraham, specifically God the Son, and says, Abraham, he's like, yes, <laughs> don't, I was lay hoping show up. <laughs> don't lay your hand on the lad. I now know that you fear God. Interesting that God acknowledges Abraham's fear of God and says, don't lay your hand on him. The promise still remains. Then, instead of the son, a ram was caught nearby in a thicket, and they Mm. said, offer that instead. Now, what's interesting about this is that, as we stated earlier in Hebrews, not just chapter 11, but certainly including that, this was essentially Abraham's greatest demonstration of faith, Mm. because he not only had to put on the line the thing that was closest to his heart, but he had to come to a working knowledge of God based on the same things that we're given. What has God said? How does this line up with what I'm currently being told to do legitimately? I don't think Abraham just woke up one day and said, I got to kill my kid. Now, he he made sure this was the case. And then what? Tested it in light of what he knew about God's character. So in light of the willingness he had to trust God to leave Ur of the Chaldees, the metropolitan peak of civilization at the time, 
to go to Canaan, a nation that he didn't know, that he didn't have family or connections in, to bring all of his wealth and riches with, and even entrust the well-being of his nephew, whom he had to save the bacon of. Sorry for the kosher joke. But on multiple occasions, some of you got that. And of course, when he ultimately was put through this whole rigmarole, even having lapses of faith with his wife in Egypt, with Ishmael and Hagar, with everything that he had gone through up until this point, what was the working revelation from God to him. This child will be not only the fulfillment of the promise I made to you back in Genesis 12, but through this child, many nations are born. So Abraham had a decision to make. He said, well, God, you said that this child would bring many nations into the world. This child has not brought one nation into the world, let alone one individual into the world. So this is really your problem. I'm going to obey you even with the expectation of what? That he would raise him from the dead. Now, we know how it worked. We know the story because we can just continue reading three lines down. But Abraham didn't have that foresight. Abraham didn't have that perspective. So in acting on this, this is the reason that he's called the father of faith that he trusted God with the reasons that he had and acted accordingly. Now, when that sacrifice was offered, what we're essentially being given is a play-by-play preview of what would happen around, let's see, time of Abraham, 1960 or so years later, with Jesus only, as Ravi Zacharias oftentimes emphasized, the knife did not stop that time. Right, And the mm. point of emphasis that we need to make is when Isaac was not only exempt from this physical death, but Abraham did share the heart of the father in a way no one else in history ever has, what still needed to be done? A sacrifice needed to be made on that mountain. Mm. So in a ram being offered, this provision of a substitute, we see not just the fact that Isaac was going to live, but that in the sacrifice, life would be spared. Obviously, God didn't have to be so dramatic as to raise Isaac from the dead, but what does the author of Hebrews say? In a figurative sense, he did receive Isaac back from the dead through the substitute. Right. That was the significance of the ram. Hmm. So if we ask, well, no, is there like some symbolic aspect, like a ram has horns and horns are evil, getting into the demon issue, nothing could be further from the truth. It was an animal an animal that would die in Isaac's place, just like the offering Isaac was foreshadowing would also be for our place. A substitutionary atonement is the fancy way of putting it. Yeah, and it's it's really significant that uh, uh, Abraham called the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means God is our provider. Provides, yeah. uh, and then the explanation was, for it has been said in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Uh, the the language there is really interesting because it means that it's Jehovah Jireh, not because of what happened with Abraham and Isaac, but because of a future event mm. that would take place in that same spot. And you know, it's uh, fascinating when you take a look at the geography of the area around the Temple Mount in Israel. Mm. Uh, you know, the mountains of Moriah uh, was where the Jewish Temple was uh, was established. Mm. Uh, the, the fascinating thing, though, is if you go there, you'll notice that there's uh, at the uh, north side of the uh, Temple Mount area, there's an intervening valley. Well, that intervening valley is not a natural phenomena. It was a valley that was, con- that was created 
by quarrying out limestone rock uh, for the various building projects that would go on in Jerusalem. So if you went back to the time of Abraham uh, and you were going into that area and you were going to offer a sacrifice, you would go to the highest point uh, on the mountains of Moriah. Interestingly, uh, to the north of the Temple Mount area, if you keep going across that intervening valley, uh, you run right into the site known as Gordon's Calvary, uh, the place of the skull uh, that uh, many people believe was where Jesus was sacrificed. And at that point, place was the highest point on Mount Moriah. So it is entirely possible that uh, Isaac was laid down uh, for sacrifice by Abraham on precisely the same spot that Jesus was crucified. Mm. So fascinating wow. stuff. Indeed. Yeah. Is that a place you visited when yeah. you went? To? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How was that? Uh, uh, Gordon's Calvary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just uh, being in that. Yeah. You know, there's a controversy that comes up. Uh, you know, real good people disagree on this. Some people say the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the site where Jesus was crucified. Mm. I tend to disagree. It just seemed rather, John, you can chime in on this if you want, mm. it seemed rather hokey. Uh, to me, the way it was set up, because there was like 15 feet between where Jesus was crucified and supposedly where the tomb is and, and so on. Uh, very, very churchy kind of a setting there. Mm. Um, there are some archaeological uh, evidences that there was a, uh, underneath all of this, there was an area where a tomb was and so on. Mm. But uh, when you take a look at the, uh, the layout of uh, the way Jerusalem was and where they would crucify people, they would crucify people on the main thoroughfares that would come into the city because uh, the point of crucifixion was the Romans' charming way of saying, don't mess with us or this is going to happen mm. to you. This is very public. It's a very, very strong uh, detriment uh, yeah. to uh, taking on the man, if you will. Yeah. yeah, it's basically a question of whether they crucified Jesus behind the local Walmart or on the freeway. It yeah. was a, literally a question given the... Uh, it, illustration, but it's literally a question given the information we're told in Luke as to whether or not in Jesus' procession that he made a right hand or a left hand turn after leaving one of the primary gates Mm. surrounding the city of David. Mm. So it's really superficial for people who would be dogmatic about it. It's really inconsequential given the historical reality that there was a man named Jesus. He was crucified this way, was buried, and then seen again Uh, three days later, as he predicted, by over 500 documented people at one time. That's the foundation of it. But regarding the semantics of it, it's literally that question. It was both the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, to their credit, are in publicly accessible areas, but the site that we prefer, the one that oversees the actual mountain that looks like a skull, that is the one that would be on the main highway. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, the place of the skull now, if you go and take a look at it, it's right adjacent to the area known as the Garden Tomb, Mm. Uh, and uh, (laughs) it's uh, located on a hillside that basically backs up into a uh, bus station and convenience store now. Yeah. I mean, it's just you know, it's it's kind of hidden way back there. Yeah. But when you go there, and you can take a look at this online, there are pictures of Gordon's Calvary uh, that uh, go back to the 1800s before, you know, there was erosion and some land uh, some uh, landslides and so on. Oh. Uh, and boy, the, the picture of that area, the rock formation there, looks for all the world like a human skull. And that mm-hmm. is a detail that uh, you would have to take into account, the place of the skull. Uh, right. So... Uh, you know, standing there and taking a look at that was a really meaningful experience. Yeah. And then uh, the garden tomb area down there where there is a tomb, 
that uh, was definitely uh, a uh, high-class tomb. Mm. Uh, those who had these tombs... <laughs> high-class uh, tomb. Well, those who had these tombs had to be people of, of wealth. And we know that Joseph of Arimathea was the one that allowed Jesus to be buried in his family tomb. Mm. Uh, you know, the fascinating thing uh, about all of that is uh, you go down there and you see this tomb, and it does date to the time of Jesus. Wow. So, you know, to me, uh, it's far more meaningful uh, to visit the garden tomb than it is mm. to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm. Your mileage uh, may vary. Uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre has been literally overrun by religiosity. There's eight mm. different groups uh, that fight over uh, the uh, administration of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Mm. Uh, and when we were there, uh, one of the, uh, the ladies in our group uh, went to take a picture of one of the monks, and another monk ran up and said, no pictures, and smashed her camera into her face. Oh, my gosh. And it was probably one of the, you know, it's like religion on steroids. We walked up to the front of it. You took look at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. There's a, um, a second story, and there's a balcony uh, with a window facing out with a ladder on it. Mm. And uh, our tour guide, Ronnie Simone, said, do you see that ladder? And I said, yeah, what about it? He goes, that ladder has been there since 1878. Uh, well, why? Well, in 1878... Uh, one of the groups decided that those windows needed cleaning, so they put the ladder up there. But then the other groups uh, were all upset because they didn't get authorization to clean the windows. And so they still, over all these years, have not been able to resolve this conflict. So the ladder stays put. And there was a local prank that was performed moving the ladder a few feet to the left, and that caused a lot of controversy, and they had to move it back. So, you know, um, if uh, we're going to be going back to Israel in 2024, we'll put in the details together, and we'll let you know uh, here on the program how you can be a part of that. It's just definitely a life-changing thing. We do include on our tour a trip to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for people who haven't seen it. Mm. Um, you know, it's something you really ought to see. Uh, me, I don't even go in anymore. Mm. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's religiosity on steroids to me. It's everything that mm. uh, tends to give uh, skeptics uh, reasons to doubt the gospel rather than confirm mm. faith. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, so, but if you want to see the pageantry and people putting on these uh, processions and uh, looking very holy and, and uh, wearing the robes and swinging the incense, knock yourself out. Yep. To me, I, Maybe literally. I, I find it uh, far more edifying to go to uh, the, the garden tomb. It always reminds me of the uh, uh, classic uh, ending of uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade where he's trying to figure out which chalice uh, Jesus might have used, and uh, you know, there's all these ornate ones, and the, the evil guy says, "Oh, this is a cup fit for a king." And uh, the guy who's the old, old, old knight goes, "He chose poorly," you know. <laughs> and Indiana Jones figures out that the most simple cup was mm. probably the one that uh, the carpenter would have used yeah, right. under that circumstance. Right. And I think that simplicity is a really beautiful thing. That's why I highly recommend going to the Garden Tomb, and yeah. it's, it's been my honor. Uh, to have uh, been able to uh, preach the gospel and uh, to be able mm. to lead in communion at that site. Wow. And uh, the, fir the, the first time, and I, I just have to give him props for this, Robert Furrow, who was, it was his tour, I was able to get in on, Sean, and I were able to get in on, on the last minute. Uh, Robert gave me the uh, opportunity to, to first preach there, and I still wow. get chills thinking about it. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Props to you, Robert. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll always owe you one for that. Right. They Very even cool. let me to preach at Angetti. Really? Man. <laughs> I made friends with the goats. <laughs> I've seen pictures of that, yeah. yeah. Well, Taylan, thank you. It was your question that sparked all that discussion up. Good on you. Thank you. <laughs> but we digress. We, we, we digress, yeah. Thank you, yeah. Taylan. Appreciate that. I hope that helps, it's what you, we do. helps you out. It's what we do well. Uh, question from Lily. Lily, thank you for hanging in there with your question. I know that you asked it um, I've been looking yesterday forward to this one, as yeah. well. Oh, we'll skip it then. No, I'm yeah. <laughs> uh, Lily asks, what does it mean that God, uh, God's will is to conceal a matter for kings to search it out? Are we the kings that are to search out the concealed things as well as the secret things that belong to the Lord? Or is this none of our business? Um, I've also heard the hidden things are the things like our purpose, jobs, gifts, and talents, etc. Yeah, um, let me read the passage. Say it's the will, the literal translation, and it's pretty straightforward across the board. Um, one notes it as the privilege, but every other one renders it this way. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. Mm. Now, Lily, for those in you as well uh, who aren't familiar with the book of Proverbs, it's in the poetry section of the Old Testament and follows four basic, this is throughout the entire book, uh, poetic structures and how to present ideas and these wise sayings that make up the book of Proverbs. This one is what's called a contrast. It's taking a single theme and comparing it to something that is either lesser or not as good, the lesser to the greater. There's also an example of a couplet, which is comparing two themes in order to emphasize similarities. This would be a contrast between God and his priorities and kings specifically and their priorities. And from the wise saying, we can glean some truth, not about, well, what's the deeper significance of what we're to search out. It's a lot more straightforward and plain than we would give it credit for, but it is always worth discussing. In this proverb, there's two subjects. There's God and there's kings, the heavenly king and the earthly king. God knows everything, but his priority is concealing to make sure that someone isn't, you know, punished for their crimes, to seek forgiveness in a court case. A king, on the other hand, doesn't know everything, and his, his uh, glory, his desire, what shows him for what he is, is him seeking out a matter. Right. So you have someone who doesn't know everything who wants to investigate. You have someone who does know everything and wants to redeem, wants to forgive. So where do the priorities lie? Well, obviously, this isn't a condemnation against capital punishment. God is in favor of kings doing this sort of thing, if it is true, to seek out a matter truthfully. But if we note God's priorities are for the redemption of the wicked rather than their punishment, what then should the job of earthly kings be? This is the point that Solomon's making. God's job is to forgive them. It's the king's job to punish them. You are neither. That's a first thing that you can take away from. But what's also interesting, this can be, and rightly is, taken from Deuteronomy 29, where Moses makes the observation that the secret things, the things that we don't know, the kings, right, belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed to us and our children forever are for what purpose? That we may follow the words of his law. So understanding then where Solomon's gleaning this from, we can take a few steps forward with it. What is the point? 
if God's priority is forgiveness, and we see this even continue to be preached in Ezekiel 33.11, quoted by Peter in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, I believe, all of these things show the character of God. If you knew everything and you were perfect, you wouldn't seek the punishment of the wicked. You try to redeem them, to conceal those matters. If you were given power, your job, your responsibility, is to seek out those truths so that you can properly represent God. This is the contrast that's being made, not just between responsibilities and priorities, but the main difference between God and man. God knows everything. Man doesn't. Man seeks to know the things they have to know. That is, kings in a court of law. But God is the judge of all the earth. Where are his priorities? In our redemption. And that's a revelation, by the way, in the New Testament, or mm-hmm. Old Testament, excuse me. So note those points, Lily, and understand the theme of the contrast. And we say, oh, well, kings are humans, and we're humans, so we're the kings in this passage. Kind of a stretch. Oh, yeah. well, God's des- glory, God's will, no, it says glory is to conceal a matter. When's God shown for what he is, his weightiness? It's in redemption, not in punishment. Punishment comes naturally. Right. But if on the other hand, when is a king shown as proper? When he can represent God, not knowing everything, yet justly judging. That's the point of the proverb. Yeah. Yeah. And I I couldn't add anything else to that. Uh, You know, as far as God concealing a matter, some people say, so is God holding out on us? Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes people will raise that issue uh, based upon that proverb. Well, in a sense, God is, because if God were to reveal himself in his totality, uh, we'd all be charcoal briquettes. We'd choose poorly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so uh, God will reveal as much of himself uh, as he possibly can to us. He certainly uh, desires to lead us into all truth. I, I think of Jesus famous words in John 16, I have so much more to tell you now, but you cannot bear it. Mm. Uh, whenever I read that, I always take a step back and, and say, okay, Lord, you know, what's keeping me uh, in my life from being able to receive more of your truth? Mm. You know, are there areas that, you know, are, are roadblocks and, and, and things mm. that you have to deal with first before you can lead me into truth? Sometimes mm. uh, the, the pathway that God uses to lead us into all truth is going through difficult times and sufferings and reversals because it's then that we <laughs> die to ourselves and die to our pride and realize that uh, unless the Lord has mercy and grace on us, we're not going to make it. Right. So, you know, does God conceal some things from us? Not willingly. Certainly like to reveal everything all at once, but uh, he also remembers his audience. I think that's a safe, uh, mm. safe thing to remember as yeah. well. Very good. Remember the poetry structure, remember the subjects, and remember the actual proverb, the glory of yeah. kings, not the will of kings. But I think your your point is really well taken in that sometimes we will lift a proverb like that out of its context and forget who it's being addressed to mm. uh, or try to kind of go get into the metaphorical thing. Well, you know, we're kingdom of priests before the Lord, uh, so I guess this uh, applies to us. Well, if someone uses that passage and says, boy, we really need to dig into God's truth, <laughs> right on, I'll, I'll applaud you day and night. But I don't think that's what that proverb specifically is teaching. Yeah, or God, thank goodness God conceals our sin, or thank goodness that we have a just king who would seek out these matters rather than brush them under the bus mm. to hide his human trafficking history. The point being made is that. Mm. Very good. Well, thank you, Lily. Great question. Hope that helps you out and guides you along as well. 
A uh, question from Robert. A brother was talking with me about the expansiveness of God's love and mercy that when Jesus went down to Abraham's bosom to preach to the captives, he believes Judas Iscariot is now in heaven. But it's really hard for me to believe that. I understand he sealed his eternity once he gave his heart complete to Satan. Please give me some clarity to this. Thank you, and God bless. Careful with that last caveat because he didn't give his heart well, ultimately to Satan. He never received restoration because there were two people who betrayed Jesus that night. One was worse than Judas. It was the apostle Peter. It notes plenty of things like it, Satan put it into the heart of Judas. Satan entered into Judas at the time of his betrayal. We know that Jesus had no kind words to say to Judas, the one to whom he would be betrayed. It would be better if that man had never been born. But noting him as titles that would even apply to the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the one who would receive judgment by nature, that and all that being stated is kind of final as far as his ultimate fate. But the re underlying assumption that we need to deal with here is the idea of universalism, that love wins, that even Satan will one day get redeemed because God is so good, no one will be ultimately judged. No one's ultimately going to stay in hell. You know, that's a great that's a theory. Good. I like that idea. I, I just have one problem with it. Uh, Something about this that bought us. Uh, keeps me up at night. <laughs> My wife tells yeah, me all yeah. these things. I can't um, here's the problem. You know, we'd all love the idea of universalism. It certainly would... Uh, essentially take all of the uh, impetus off of us uh, to share the gospel that Jesus died for sinners. And if God is just one day going to forgive everybody, uh, one of the big questions that I would ask is, okay, then why did Jesus have to die? Um, right. If it's just uh, God's a really good guy, he's going to forgive everybody. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with all of that is, is, is twofold. First of all, when we come to conclusions like this, we're looking at sin strictly on a horizontal perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we tend to see it, uh, sin, as being egregious or minor based upon how it affects people in the here and now, in the, in the plane that we live in. Mm -hmm. But we fail to realize something. When we sin, we commit an eternal wrong. Because when we sin, essentially what we do is we rebel against the eternal God. Uh, we say to him uh, every time we sin, whether we realize it or not, yeah, I know you said thou shalt not bear false witness, but you take your standards and go take a hike. I know better than you do. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine doing that in the, the very presence of God? Mm -hmm see the angels kind of pulling out the swords going you want me to dispatch this creature right now you know it, it's interesting that only the person who is offended can forgive right mm. um you know if right. you know say dave you and i are riding on a bus mm. and a guy gets on the bus and for no reason at all whacks you in the face mm. but i look at that guy and i say oh well don't worry uh, i forgive, I forgive you. you for that <laughs> Yeah. Well, you're the guy, you know, who's going to need some dental work going on. You might say, well, I think I might have something to say about that. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying to that guy might sound very generous and very noble, but ultimately it's unrighteous because I don't have the right to be able to confer forgiveness on someone for a wrong done to somebody else. Right. Only the offended party mm -hmm. has the right to forgive sins. Right. King David said, Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Yeah. and done what is evil in, in your sight. Now, at that moment, 
Remember where David is in Psalm 51, he's confessing his sin of, among other things, committing adultery with Bathsheba, mm. sleeping with one of his best friend's wives, uh, his best friend's wife. Uh, he covers it up by setting up uh, the untimely death of Uriah the Hittite. Mm. Uh, you know, he covers it up for an entire year in all of this. And then in when he gets nailed, his uh, spiritual advisor, Prophet Nathan, tells him a story about a guy who had a you know, little lamb that was like a member of the family, mm. big lamb rancher next to him, has a guy visit him, doesn't want to kill one of his sheep, so he by force takes the lamb and, and slaughters it. Nathan says, what should be done for such a man? Mm. And David, with the uh, indignation that can only come from a guilty conscience, says, such a man is not fit to live. He must restore fourfold, and then after that, we'll kill him. And Nathan goes, you're the man. You're the dude, yeah. And when the jig was up, David was like, yeah. you're right. And so in that context, David says against you and you only have I sinned. Well, a lot of horizontal stuff uh, was going on. What was David saying? Well, ultimately, when it's all said and done, every sin we commit is against God. And that sounds challenging to us, but it's also uh, an incredible avenue of hope. Is uh, when Jesus healed a paralytic in uh, the book of uh, Mark chapter 2. This is described, you want to read about it. Uh, when he heals the paralytic, the first thing he says to this paralytic uh, is, uh, son, your sins are forgiven. Mm. Now, if I'd been there, I would have said, well, you know, nice, you know, you're dealing with the spiritual stuff, yeah. Jesus, but I don't think this guy came for confession. Mm. His buddies climbed up on the roof. Uh, dug a hole in the roof and lowered him down because they know that if this guy doesn't get help quick, he's going to die. Um, you know, and, and here we see the difference. We tend to think that the spiritual is important, but the physical is what really matters. Right. And what God says is the physical is important, but it's the spiritual that really matters. Why? Because if all Jesus did was say that prolific man, okay, be healed. He could have done that. But if he didn't stop and deal with this guy's alienation in his walk with God, it's really a temporary miracle. Yeah. Because this guy's going to die and he's going to spend eternity separated from God. So Jesus deals with his eternal spiritual issue first, and then he deals with the physical. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. The people looking on kind of react and said, who does this guy think he is? Who but God can forgive sins? Mm -hmm. And they were right because God is the offended party in all sins. Mm. When you commit a sin against an eternal person, when you sin against an eternal standard, mm. there is an eternal punishment that goes along with that violation. Mm. And as such, that is why Jesus Christ had to die on a cruel Roman cross, mm. because he was not only a man who lived a perfect life so he could be our representative, but he was also God in human flesh so that he could offer a sacrifice of eternal value to pay the price for our sins past, present, and future. So that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. If we receive that gift of forgiveness in eternal life, then we can be forgiven completely and totally and eternally. Mm. But if we reject that, understand something, we've chosen something else. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, you know I, I look at scriptures like Revelation chapter 14, where it talks about people who commit the sin of worshiping the Antichrist in the tribulation period. It says that uh, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength 
in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. Hmm. You know, this idea of forever and ever here is the strongest way in the original language to communicate an eternal state. And, and, and so... You know, people say, oh, well, you know, kind of like that rich man and the, the rich man and Lazarus are going to be people going, oh, I made a, a huge and horrible mistake and, and you know, warn my brothers so that they don't come to this place of torment. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. But the, the, the bottom line, though, is those who are in hell are those who choose it. Right. And, and that's a hard thing for a lot of people to get their mind wrapped around. Yep. C.S. Lewis talked about how uh, the door to hell is locked on the inside, because if we are rebellious creatures, if we don't want to live in the presence of Almighty God, if we say to God, uh, you know, not thy will, but mine be done, God will one day stand before us and say, you've chosen your path. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be nobody in hell forever who would, you know, I know this sounds bizarre, but would want it any other way, mm-hmm. because that rebellion is going to be confirmed in their hearts, just mm-hmm. as our relationship our love relationship with god is going to be confirmed in our hearts so that rebellion against god is also going to be confirmed Mm. and i mean that really brings us down to brass tacks about the fact that uh, today if you hear his voice don't harden your heart you know don't say well you know i'm a pretty good person i'll take my chances yeah that's a huge chance to take Mm. so um you know the idea that someday uh, because love wins, like you mentioned, the mm. uh, dreaded Rob Bell book. The only way you come to that conclusion is by setting aside what the clear teachings of Scripture are. Mm. People say, oh, well, isn't it unloving to talk to people about hell? Well, no more unloving than, say, an oncologist talking to somebody and say, you've got cancer, and unless we deal with this, you're going to die. You're going right. to go through a horrible set of circumstances. Yep. So, um, you know, I, I think it's less loving for me to be so enamored of what people think about me, mm. uh, to say, oh, I don't want them to think I'm you know, mean or narrow-minded, so I won't tell them yeah. that Jesus died for them. I won't tell them there's a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned, and they're going to think I'm a wonderful person, uh, but, oh, the price of that is them being lost forever? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. Not doing any people, people any favors by inventing these sort of things, Talon. That's, that's, that's right. really what it comes down to. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, that was that was Robert's question. Thank you, Robert, for that oh, question. I'm sorry, yeah, Robert. no, absolutely. I uh, appreciate it. A uh, question from Lonnie. Again, thank you for hanging in there, Lon- uh, Lonnie, with your question. Is God required to be more obvious to his creation, or is everything to be taken by faith? Well, so, I'm glad you phrased it as more obvious, because the problem with the, well, God hasn't revealed himself sufficiently, so therefore I don't believe. Right. And therefore, since God hasn't revealed himself sufficiently to my taste, he needs to be more obvious or I won't be convinced, then everything is to be taken on faith, even though that's not what that means, in order to come to a conclusion with the evidence I already have. Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear that God has made himself apparent in his creation, that because of the complexity, the design, the majesty of everything that we see around us, that they are without excuse. That if there is a creation, there is a creator. If this universe started at a starter, at least comparable to it, we can work with that. And God says that alone is worth judging someone on. 
yet they would throw it out and say, no, the basis of all science, the study of cause and effect, is in fact because of a uncaused effect. Right. Fun. Uh, on the other hand, we're also needing to take into consideration that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in particular, of all the religions out there, which creator's the right one, only one's actually put his credentials on the table, not only revealing himself in their documented history, what we call the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament in documented universal history, right. not just pertaining to one nation, but accessible to every and sufficient to satisfy any fair historical inquirer. And I'm not saying that to poison the well, nor am I saying it by rote because I say it so often. It's literally that legitimate. Atheist scholars would acknowledge the fundamental facts that would require Jesus of Nazareth to not only have been who he said, but also have done what he did, according to the gospel accounts. They dismiss the conclusions, but they have to at least acknowledge the facts. This is unobjective on their point, and I think they're going to have to answer for a lot of it. But the point being made in regards to this whole confusion is, is God obligated? Well, is he obligated to satisfy my interests, or does he know what an objective mind would be satisfied by? And you're actually the problem. This is where we have to call people to task. And it may sound mean, but I do it so well. When we're talking to people and they don't listen, the problem is I wasn't convincing enough. The problem is they weren't listening. (laughs) If God revealed himself and they're not watching, God's not required to reveal himself so much so that their hands burned off and they can't cover their eyes anymore, they need to take their hands off their eyes. The problem isn't a lack of faith, and we'll define that here in a moment. The problem is a willful rejection of the obvious, and this is the point. When we're talking about faith, the word in Greek, pistis, literally means trust with reason. Given the reasons that we have, not just in the creation, but also within the creation, not just through the majesty of the universe, the obvious nature of not only the nature of truth, the nature of logic, the nature of physics, the nature of science itself, but also, by the way, founded by Christians, the concept of complexity and fine-tuning in the universe. Even atheists like Christopher Hitchens said, that's my biggest problem with Christianity, not against it, but for it, and I don't know how to deal with it. Mm. That's why he resorted to the classic British rhetoric that would focus more on the emotional rather than the objective. When we're talking about the actual issue at hand, it's the hearts and minds of stubborn and rebellious people, which we all are. If I then say, well, what God has done isn't enough for me, if he were real, and this is the argument of modern atheists like Matt Dillahunty, if he existed, he would know what would convince me. I'm not convinced, therefore he doesn't exist, because then he would do those things. So you've literally defined God for him by saying, God is an entity that exists to entertain me intellectually, Mm -hmm. not how he defined or revealed himself. If on the other hand, I'd say, okay, what has God revealed? And is it reasonable to come to these conclusions? You'll still find people who say, but I had this experience, but I want to have fun first. Mm -hmm. I don't want to commit. (laughs) It's not a matter of God's revelation. It's our rebellion. Mm-hmm. That's the issue. Is God obligated to entertain or to convince the unconvincible? No. On the other hand, what has God done to convince you, and is that reasonable? That's what should be tested. That's what should be asked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just think of what Titus uh, chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God 
that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The mm. word appeared carries the idea of a full full disclosure. Oh, wow. uh, in, in other words, the information is available yeah. to anybody who wants to look. Mm. Um, you know, people say, well, what about the one who never heard? Uh, what right. about that noble savage in Africa? Well, you know, if there really is such a thing as a noble savage out there that is just lacking the information, I'll tell you, God will move heaven and earth to get that information to them. We've seen it too often, even in the the the, uh, the Bible. Read Acts chapter ten about how God literally, uh, against all odds, draw drew an individual who was a Roman centurion of all things into a faith that was being yeah. promoted by people that woke up in the morning and thought that serving God was killing him. Mm. How did that God come to know God? Mm. Uh, you know, He literally drugged. Simon Peter kicking and screaming to share with this guy. Didn't want to go. Gave him uh, three visions. And uh, finally on the third one, he goes, okay, I, I guess so. Uh, and and uh, just uh, it's just such an amazing thing that God's bent is towards salvation. And uh, you know, there's a fascinating book called Eternity in Their Hearts by mm-hmm. Don Richardson that talks about how God has not left himself without a witness in all these different cultures mm-hmm. and uh, and people groups. And that the... Uh, the uh, task of the missionary is to uh, find out the key that unlocks their hearts that God has already placed there. Mm. So uh, to say that somehow if I don't come to know God, it's God's fault, <laughs> I think it's a little narcissistic. Yeah, a little quite bit. Frankly. Yeah. Well, great. Well, just like that, we're out of time. Uh, uh, Susie and Ted and Yari, sorry we didn't get your questions, but I have them here for tomorrow. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same places Uh, email address once more questions for hope at gmail.com send your questions there and we'll see you tomorrow have a great evening god bless you you've been listening to a reason for hope thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through god's word one question of the heart at a time until we meet again we would love to connect with you you can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com you can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.